0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The ShweP, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at Shwep.net. Episode 49, The Long Secret History of Judaism, Part 2, Second Temple Judaism. Well, it's been a while since we visited the Jews. When we last met, in episode 11, they'd sort of emerged from the mists of prehistory, founded a Bronze Age kingdom, probably. present-day Palestine and then become a temple-based cult worshipping the god Yahweh or El or Elohim. There are a bewildering number of strata and traditional names in the texts. They had their temple destroyed by invading Neo-Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar II after the siege of Jerusalem in the year 587 BCE, and this was the end of the first temple period. The first temple, built according to legend by King Solomon himself, set the pattern for later temple-based Jewish cult. There was a single place of worship and sacrifice in Jerusalem, and Judaism didn't really work without that temple, its attendant priests, the sacrifices, and the whole shebang. So what followed the destruction of the temple is known as the Babylonian captivity. After this time, some Jews were able to return to their ancestral lands under the rule of the Achaemenid Persians, who conquered the Neo-Babylonians. They rebuilt the temple, and they resumed business as usual. Thus began the Second Temple Period in around 516 BCE. So, for a bit of context, roughly at the same time as our pre-Socratic philosophers like Pythagoras, Heraclitus, and Parmenides were doing their thing, only business would never be as usual again. In the Second Temple Period, we see Judaism come to be Judaism. I mean really something recognizably related to the modern movements known as Judaism. But like modern Judaism, it's split into many sects and groups, which we shall be talking about in this episode and episodes to come. We can't always clearly discern who these groups were. Many of our sources are quite late, notable among them being the books of the New Testament and the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in the first century CE or like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we shall be discussing in a bit, it's difficult to pin down exactly which group of Jews they pertain to. And speaking of Josephus, he was an interesting guy. An elite Hellenized Jew, he fought against Rome in the Jewish War of the late 60s CE, but was taken prisoner and enslaved. He managed to become an imperial slave to the Emperor Vespasian's household, served the Romans well up to and during their destruction of the second temple, and the sacking of Jerusalem in the year 70, and was rewarded for his good service by being freed. Hence his adopted name, Flavius Josephus, the Flavian gens being the family of the emperor himself. So, one of history's great turncoats, but lucky for us in a way, because the books he wrote about the Jews, in Greek for a general Greco-Roman audience, are an inestimable source for our knowledge of Jewish history in the Hellenistic and Roman period. He stands at an interesting historical juncture as he lived through the destruction of the Second Temple and into the later period, which would give rise to rabbinic Judaism, Christianity, Gnosticism, and a number of other peculiar offshoots of the Jewish culture in the Roman Empire. We shall be meeting Josephus again in the podcast, so remember his name. Now, backing up again to the Second Temple period as a whole, this is the time when many of the texts of the Old Testament took the form which they now enjoy. The short version of this incredibly complex textual story is that much of the basic Jewish scripture began to be assembled in more or less its modern form in the Persian period and later. So a pretty recent set of texts in the scheme of things, but incorporating loads of stuff that is really, really ancient. Not all of the Jews, however, recognized the same fixed canon of texts. A basic canonization of the Torah and the prophetic books seems to have become widespread by the first century CE. But even then, various apocrypha continue to ripple through the Jewish communities of the Mediterranean. So forget any idea that the Jews have always been living by the law of the written Torah as we now have it. The process of canonization has been glacially slow, and new texts were continually being added, as we mentioned way back in episode 11. So now let's back up again and get a little more historically situated in the time period we're dealing with. From the perspective of normative Western European history, what we're dealing with here, the Second Temple period, are the classical Hellenistic and early Roman imperial periods. In case that means nothing to you, or means not too much, the classical period is where we were in the podcast when we looked at early Greek philosophy at Plato, and really all the way down to Aristotle, who sort of straddles the classical and Hellenistic periods. This is the sort of glory that was Greece time starting more or less with Homer in a literary sense, and with the Achaemenid Persians as the big baddies, the big other to our Greeks. But of course, the Persians were depicted as liberators from the yoke of Babylonia in the Jewish prophetic writings of the period. So as always, these things depend on your perspective. So the classical period conventionally leads to the Hellenistic where the chronology of the podcast is now located. So hopefully listeners are getting their heads around the Hellenistic world by now. From the 330s onward, BCE, the Persian realm, Egypt, and even northern India were absorbed into a much broader world, united by a new Greek-speaking common culture, stretching in elite circles at least, from Afghanistan to Egypt and mainland Greece. We're looking at the time of Alexander the Great's conquests, the successor kingdoms to Alexander the Great, fourth century bce right up to the roman conquest of greece in the first century bce something like 300 years of hellenisticness now what does the hellenistic period have to do with the jews specifically everything while the jews have often been treated for various reasons as something of a sui generis group a whole lot of commonalities exist between the judaism which arose in the hellenistic period and other hellenistic religions as we shall see in coming episodes The best way to make sense of Second Temple Jewish esotericism is to consider it as part of a larger Hellenistic religious context with which it was in dialogue. But before we discuss these internal dynamics in Jewish writings, let's just say a few words about how the Jews were situated in the various places where they were living in the Second Temple period generally. We need to emphasize three main points. Firstly, the geographical range of Judaism in our period. Secondly, the fact that there were really diverse movements within this thing that we call Second Temple Judaism. And thirdly, building on the second point, we should look at some of the wonderful exotic sects which flourished within Second Temple Judaism, including the Jesus movement, which went on to have such a life of its own. So firstly, the Jewish diaspora. A diaspora is a spreading about in Greek, and the Jews spread about throughout the civilized Oikumene in the eastern Mediterranean in a big way. Presumably, they were already traveling and settling here and there even before the Babylonian captivity, but from the captivity onward, they really did move around in a big way. Firstly, not all of the captives returned to Judea when the Persians said they could go home. From this very ancient time begins the continuing Jewish presence in the lands now known as Iran and Iraq. And Iran today remains the Near Eastern country with the largest Jewish population, with the obvious exception of Israel, a very ancient traditional culture, which has mostly emigrated to Israel since 1948. There were Jews settled in Egypt way back as well, and the Exodus account in the Bible, whatever its tenuous relation to actual history, is a clear indication that Jewry and Egypt in some way have a millennia-old intertwined history together. Jews in the Hellenistic period migrated actively. The subject of Jewish engagement with and rejection of Hellenism in this period is a vast one, and unfortunately beyond the scope of this podcast. But a few facts are important here, as they set the stage for what was to come in Western esotericism. Crucially, Greek became a Jewish language, When we hear of the massive Jewish population of Alexandria in Egypt, of Jewish apocalyptic writings in the Hellenistic centuries, of Jewish philosophers, in fact, of Jews in general in the Eastern Mediterranean, we are talking about Greek speakers with varying degrees of accompanying Greek cultural traits. Not all Jews spoke Greek. Many other languages, most especially Aramaic, were key tongues for Hellenistic Jews, but there were plenty whose native tongue was Greek and who seemingly had no problem navigating the cultural landscape of being a Hellenic Jew. From the 3rd century BC onwards, we have records of a number of Greek translations of Hebrew scriptures, one of which, the so-called Septuagint or Septuagint Bible, is especially important in this respect. The Septuagint Bible, and the name incidentally comes from the Latin Septuaginta, meaning 70, because legend has it that One of the Ptolemies, the Hellenistic rulers of Egypt, commissioned a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek from 70 of the top Jewish scholars of the day, and by divine inspiration, all 70 produced identical versions independently. So there you go. Sometimes it's 72 scholars in the sources, but the thing is still called the 70 down to our day. Anyway, the 70, the Septuagint Bible, became the dominant Greek version, and for many Jews in the Hellenistic and later periods, the sacred scripture pure and simple. As the legend of its composition would indicate, many Jews couldn't read a word of Hebrew in our period. We shall see the Septuagint again in the context of early Christianity, since it was the Christian version of choice. But even earlier, when we discuss the works of the Jewish Platonist Philo of Alexandria, whose incredible esoteric hermeneutics of scripture are based entirely in interpretation of the Greek Jewish scriptures. The importance of all this for our overarching narrative should be clear. If the Jews had an insular, strictly separated movement within the Greco-Roman world, they would not play the outsized role they do play in Western esotericism, but they didn't. They adapted, adopted, negotiated, and found ways to express new iterations of Judaism in forms which engaged with the larger cultural milieu, notably Hellenism, in which they found themselves. And this Jewish dialogue with larger societal context was crucially a two-way street, As we shall see, the Greco Roman non Jewish world was keenly interested in the Jews, who were so peculiar in many ways, and took much from them. Um, Hellenistic and post Hellenistic Jewry, then, were an essential cultural component of Western civilization and, in its more recondite forms, of Western esotericism. So, our second main point is that Judaism was a very diverse movement in our period. In fact, It's an open question how much we should regard it as a single movement at all. The Second Temple Period is the time when we get the major groupings within Judaism, familiar from the New Testament, Josephus, and a few scattered Roman authorities. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and of course, the early Jesus movement. Which all the evidence points to having been a purely Jewish movement for the first century or so. So... These are all Jews of some kind or another, but what makes them Jews? Now, this is a really complex question. Jewishness was already in this period, something which one traced through ancestry. One was born a Jew, part of Yehud, but once political loyalties, theological beliefs, cultural practices and so forth could and did differ widely. But surely there was a common denominator here. Was there some kind of core Jewish teaching that even the weirdest, most far-flung elements of the diaspora held? Maybe monotheism? Nope. Whatever aspect of belief or practice we decide to look at, there will be evidence of some Second Temple Jews who didn't follow it. Monotheism is right out. The community of Jews on the Egyptian island of Elephantine, who may have arrived there as soldiers in the army of the conquering Persian Empire in the 6th century, or may have already been there in Egypt from who knows when, but who anyway stayed on for a thousand years or more, have left us abundant evidence of a god and goddess cult worshipping a form of the traditional Jewish god under the rather festive name of Yahu, along with his wife, the goddess Anat-Yahu. Or sometimes she's his consort, sometimes she's his helper, sometimes she's his wife. And they had their own temple as well, right there in Egypt. So if you ask them about Second Temple Judaism, they would have just given you a blank stare. Okay, what about the scriptural canon? They were all reading the Torah, right? Well, a lot of Jews in our period certainly seem to have been very text-based societies of one sort or another. But as we've mentioned, there was nothing really approaching a canonical Jewish body of texts across the board until the first century CE at the earliest And even this was a very shifty canon, which would soon expand exponentially with the addition of numerous Apocrypha, the Mishnah, the Talmud, etc., etc. So in summary, in the Second Temple period, different versions of the Jewish scriptures were accepted by different groups in different languages, and new texts were always being added, most often in Greek. In terms of the most ancient documents, we have zillions of papyri, which have emerged from Elephantine, Many of which date back to the 5th century BCE. We find, you know, receipts, invoices, bills of sale, manumission documents, letters, and all kinds of everyday stuff, as well as a document explaining the right way to celebrate Passover and various other things. What we don't find, notably, is the Torah. The Dead Sea Scrolls, another extraordinary cache of documents found in a group of caves called Qumran in Palestine supply our earliest scriptural texts of any length. This is our earliest Torah, except for a few little fragments that appear on inscribed bits of silver. Now these texts date probably from the 3rd century BCE right down to the 1st century CE, and they give us an amazing and problematic window into the life of a Hellenistic Jewish community, or perhaps a group of communities. These texts from the caves of Qumran show a Torah quite different from the so-called Masoretic Recension, which eventually became the canonical version in Rabbinic Judaism that all the Jews today tend to read. There are also some interesting texts, such as the so-called Community Rule, which lays out a rather stringent sectarian way of life for a community of Jews. Which community? Well, there's the problem. And that brings us to our third main point, the wild sectarianism of Second Temple Judaism. So, we've inherited a kind of traditional division of Jewish sects in the later Second Temple period from the Christian writings and Josephus. The main groups mentioned by Josephus are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and a mysterious fourth school of thought. Josephus, writing for a Greek audience, calls these Jewish philosophic schools, uh, an idea familiar in the Hellenistic world generally and one which also kind of gives Jewish sects a bit of cred, perhaps, to a Hellenistic readership. Ah, they're philosophic schools. Well, that's very civilized. Now, the literature here about these different sects and groups is vast, and I'm not qualified to pronounce on this subject, really. But I can say that for basically every statement we can make about a given group, say, the Sadducees were like this, some other scholar will be found to contradict it on perfectly plausible grounds, saying something like there never were any Sadducees. This is Josephus's imagination. But for what it's worth, let's look at what Josephus says. In his time, the 1st century CE, Judea, where he was from, was ruled by a local client dynasty for the Romans. Judea incidentally, is the Roman name for a big chunk of the southern, near-eastern region, which was actually full of all sorts of people, not just Jews. But the Romans liked to keep things simple, so they named it after the Jews, or their word for the Jews. Now, I should say this area was ruled by a local client dynasty, that is, until the Jewish rebellion led to the area's suppression and placement under a Roman procurator. According to Josephus, the Pharisees were a group who believed in some common Hellenistic doctrines, which we find across the board in many Hellenistic religions, such as an afterlife with reward and punishments based on our deeds in this life. They held that there was an oral Torah, a kind of tradition going back to Moses, which was on an equal footing with the written text of scriptures. So they had a a source of non-written canonical authority to be interpreted. Good. Now, the Sadducees were the ruling elite of the Jews in Judea. Uh, They had a restricted textual canon of the old-fashioned Torah written down. They didn't accept the oral Torah. They denied an afterlife, or rather, I should say that they held... The more old school Mediterranean idea that after we die, we sort of go to an underworld and persist as ghosts with no particular difference between the ghosts of good people and the ghosts of bad people, not unlike what we find in Homer and other sources for Bronze Age beliefs. So, this idea of a kind of not particularly inspiring, ghosty afterlife is very typical of the Bronze Age in general, and it is gradually being replaced in the Hellenistic period as the podcast has shown in various different episodes, with ideas about an afterlife that might be something more glorious, potentially. We've seen this in the Orphic material in Pythagoreanism and in Plato from the classical period, and this idea seems to become much more widespread in the Hellenistic period. Now, according to Josephus, the Sadducees were sort of a minority ruling clique, with their thumbs on the levers of power in Judea. Then we have the Essenes, who were super-righteous Jews who went off to live in separate communities, practiced communitarian living, poverty, stringent ritual, and general asceticism. Their priests were even celibate, according to Josephus, which is really something unusual in the Jewish context, since marriage tends to be seen as a sine qua non in Jewish societies. Now, scholars long held that the Qumran documents must pertain to a group of Essenes, Josephus talked about them, and now we found evidence that they really existed. More recently, this has been doubted by scholars. Some scholars even want to consider the Dead Sea Scrolls documents as evidence of the early Jesus movement. Now, I'm nowhere near qualified to pronounce on this issue, but for our purposes, it's enough to dig the evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls show that there were some serious, inventive, and rather extreme sectarian divisions among the late Hellenistic Jews in Palestine, accept that point of context, and move on. So there are these three named Jewish groups from Palestine in the later Second Temple period, as described for a Greek-speaking audience. And we probably don't have all the details right, but this may represent a decent picture of some primary groupings among the Jews in Palestine. We should also, of course, add, in retrospect, what modern scholars call the Jesus movement. Obviously, we should be speaking of this when we turn to Christianity later on in the podcast, but right now we can say that the poorly documented early years of what would become Christianity were clearly part and parcel of the complex disputes, wild theological speculations, political intrigues, and hopes for an independent Jewish nation which were rampant in the Hellenistic and later in the Roman period. One particular Jewish leader promising independence from Gentile rule, one Jesus of Nazareth, as some sources call him, would later gain an outside importance. But the fact that all our contemporary documents, such as they are, talk about him when they talk about him at all as a regional Jewish leader and say nothing of a new religion in the context of his name, lets us place him in the context in a general way, as a late Second Temple Jewish leader. Now, we're nearing the end of this historical introduction. But where's the esotericism, you ask? Gentle listener, this is where things get interesting. Lovers of Western esotericism are doubtless familiar with the medieval movement known as Kabbalah. Kabbalists trace this movement back to the Oral Torah. Kabbalah is in fact the tradition, the esoteric tradition, which stems from the revelation given to Moses on Mount Sinai, alongside the more familiar scriptural material, the Ten Commandments, the books of Moses, and so forth. Scholars, on the other hand, following the pioneering work of Gershom Sholem, trace key elements of the Kabbalah back to texts arising in the Second Temple period. Specifically, we need to look at the Hechalot and Merkava texts in this context. These are a number of documents centered around a journey or inner quest for a vision of God's throne or sometimes a vision of God's chariot, or sometimes a journey in the chariot to the throne, or sometimes the throne is also a chariot. And in some texts, you get a vision of the throne, in some of the chariot, and some, you even get a vision of God himself. The quest often involves angelic intermediaries, both as guides and sometimes as guardians of the celestial realms who need to be sort of evaded or otherwise got past so as to attain the vision. And all of this material is really fascinating, and we shall be looking at it with expert help in coming episode, because it's essential documents of early Jewish esotericism, and forms one of the key roots of the Kabbalah. Another crucial genre which arises in the Second Temple Period is apocalyptic. This one is slippery to define. The term apocalypse, which comes from the Greek word meaning revelation, that is, the act of revealing what was previously hidden, hence Book of Revelations in the Bible, whose traditional Greek title is Apokalypsis Ioannou, the Revelation of John, this term apocalypse doesn't actually appear very often in the works we generally want to call apocalyptic works. Scholars differ as to what counts as apocalyptic. Sometimes the Hechelot and Merkava texts are included in apocalyptic, were spoken of as having apocalyptic elements, uh, none of which really makes sense until we decide what defines apocalyptic in the first place. So we'll be grappling with this problem too in upcoming episodes. But what we can say here is that, like the biblical book of revelations, pretty much all of the texts usually discussed under the rubric of apocalyptic deal with some kind of direct revelation of secret knowledge to an individual. This is often knowledge about future events so what's going to happen the angel showed me it's often knowledge about the things of the heaven and the divine realms so i got past the guardian angels and went through the gate and saw the three heavens in the topmost of which god sits upon his throne and the throne has got blazing rubies and sapphires and eyes and flaming wings and all kinds of crazy stuff and often couched in wonderful and crazy imagery like I've just mentioned, with angels, dragons, fiery chariots, monsters, planets, seals, various other mysterious and colorful symbolism. Whatever we finally decide we want to define apocalyptic as, everyone can agree that it's amazing stuff. And, and the genre of direct revelation of divine secrets is of course relevant, very relevant, the history of Western esotericism. It may even be a defining red thread running through Western esotericism, so we'll need to explore it in some of its exquisite and bizarre details in its earliest manifestation in Judaism. Last but not least, we see a fascinating development in the relationship between the Jews and the wider oikumene in our period. The Jews develop in the Greco-Roman sphere A particular reputation for all kinds of magical practices. If we look at contemporary Jewish documents, we also see a strong preoccupation with magic, or what we might discuss under the umbrella term of magic. We have documents preserved in the Talmud, for example, where rabbis argue about what rituals are permitted for Jews, what rituals are forbidden, what works, what doesn't, how does it work, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we shall be discussing Jewish magic in antiquity, both from the Jewish perspective and from the perspective of the Jewish reputation as skilled ritual practitioners, which we find in non-Jewish sources. The beginning of a very long and sometimes blood-stained history of the perception of the Jews as especially magical for good and ill. So, this episode has aimed to give the briefest of contextual discussions For judaism in the second temple period what period are we talking about what was basically going on with the jews what were they doing that sort of thing and i hope it's been helpful in just creating a blanket kind of background context for the episodes to come where we look at esoteric judaism in this period historians of judaism will have found this episode very boring and probably ridiculously oversimplified But since this story is terra incognita to many Jews and non-Jews alike, it seemed worth laying down some basics. In our period, we do not have one Judaism. We do not have a Jewish world living in isolation, but rather a sprawling, burgeoning Jewish diaspora engaging with Hellenism and all the other cultural influences it rubbed up against, as well as negotiating its own identity as a separate people. And the influence went both ways, as I hope I've made clear. The fact that Josephus wrote a guide to Jewish history for a general audience surely bespeaks an interest in the Jews beyond Jewish circles, and this interest would only grow in the Roman period. Sometimes it took the form of outright hatred, because the Jews did have some weird customs, and the Romans just found them kind of intransigent and funny. But sometimes, to the contrary, the Jews were accorded the status of the wisest of barbarian sages. And meanwhile, we shouldn't forget, behind the discourses about what it meant to be a Jew, we have ample evidence for all manner of intermarriage, conversions, conversations, and other mingling between Jewry and the wider society in antiquity. So the boundaries of Jewry in our period are very porous. Listeners who are now dried out in the harsh desert of historical summary will want to listen next time as we turn to the refreshing springs of apocalyptic literature, a formative genre that arises in the Second Temple period and which would change the face of Western esotericism forever. And until then, make like the oral Torah of Moses and stay esoteric.